Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode eight of Reformed Podmatics. We're excited to have you along for what hope we hope to be an interesting conversation. I'm Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we are going to be answering the question, well, what is Reformed Theology anyway? Our podcast is called Reformed Podmatics, and so we figured at some point early on here as we begin this this episode or this this podcast in general, we should get to this question of what what do we mean when we say the word reformed and this is a question that i get a lot as a pastor uh, both with the adults in our church and with the students uh, one question i recently heard which i think uh, makes this episode worthwhile was what are we reformed from and what are we reforming to yeah it's interesting that the word reformed is is an adjective, um, and it's an adjective that usually is going to be changing the word that comes after that, or qualifying or explaining the word that comes after that. But we just say reformed theology. Well, what does it mean to be reformed? Yeah, it's uh, it's a big one, uh, especially for those of us who who do <laughs> claim to be Christian reformed, and for people mm-hmm. to whom that matters. This is a worthy undertaking, I would say. And it's, um, in my reading in preparation for this, uh, Herman Bovink was noting that it's a complicated question because um, we don't have in the Reformed faith a pope. We don't have, um, even he notes in something like Lutheranism, we don't have a founder per mm-hmm. se. There's John Calvin would be the closest thing to that. But, but Luther is the founder of Lutheranism, and that goes right back to him. And we don't have somebody exactly like that, and there's no mm-hmm. one exactly like that living today who is the Reformed voice. And so that's part of what makes this a complicated question to answer. Yeah, it, it, we'll get into that a little bit more, too, about how the Reformed tradition came into being early in the mm-hmm. the Reformation in the 1520s uh, and so on. But before we we jump into the history and the development of the confessions and the catechisms and so on that that would come in the reformed tradition it's it's good for us to of course start by saying today what is typically meant by reformed theology comes down to what i call the fives the five points and the five solas um, we've probably all heard of the famous tulip uh, and so we can let's let's start there, and then we'll move to the solas. What are the five points of Calvinism, as they're called? Uh, the T U L I and P. Yeah, well, we can group the two different fives maybe in uh, categories so that people would know even what we're talking about. So the five points of Calvinism teach about how salvation happens, how God is glorified in saving people. And so um, that's what 
the canons of Dort answer the hmm. question for? Uh, the, the question was being raised, how does God save? How does God work? How is God glorified in Christ, in his saving work? And they developed four sections, actually, and one of them is kind of divided into two to make hmm. it five. And um, this, these doctrines that arose from that were later on called the five points of Calvinism. And so it begins with unconditional election. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually ultip. It's not <laughs> quite tulip, um, but it has to start with election. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, because election happened actually before our total depravity came into uh, uh, sort of a practical existence, you might say. Mm -hmm. um, and so it begins with unconditional election that God, from before the creation of the world, uh, predestined those who he would pull out of sin, pull out of damnation into his salvation. And so that's unconditional election. Then after that is limited atonement. And the word um, limited atonement has has not really... <laughs> uh, that hasn't been favorably received all that yeah, often. totally. Um, uh, and so it, it means there that God has done a particular thing in saving his own, that is, through Jesus Christ, that is not just making salvation available to those who he has elected, but accomplishing our salvation at the cross in hmm. Jesus Christ. And so um, I, I preached about this once in a sermon where I mentioned evangelicals will often like to say, when were you saved? Hmm. And I think the Reformed person should say, when Jesus died on the cross for me. Yeah, because the the question assumes you're going to tell a story about mm -hmm. your life. Yeah, it's and, a moment you came in the and, middle of the night. Yeah, and really, yeah. what I think they're asking <laughs> from our reform perspective is, when were you regenerate? When you, were you born again? Yeah, um, and that is a moment that happens in the Christian's life. But when mm -hmm. we were saved is at the cross because His particular mm -hmm. saving work happened there. And yeah. so that's that's the reformed view that God did it, God saved me, and um, it didn't happen when I experienced it. It happened when He accomplished it. Yeah. So there's there's that reformed distinction of when when it was accomplished and yep. when it was applied. Yes. You want to go for t the T there. So the T total depravity is is one of the less controversial ones I think sure. in the in the five points, um, although. There are distinctive ways that the Reformed tradition has held to it. Uh, total depravity, of course, means total in the sense that it 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 the, our depravity touches on every aspect and it affects every aspect of human existence. Yeah. Um, so mind, soul, uh, spirit, body, and so on. Every every bit of what it means to be human has been touched by the stain of sin. Now, it's not to say. Uh, that we're completely or as sinful as we as we possibly could yeah. be as humans, but it means that all uh, of the capacities and faculties of human existence are are deeply affected um, by sin in such a way that we are spiritually dead prior to being born again. And being spiritually dead, we get this idea maybe the clearest, and I think of Ephesians two. Um, 
where Paul says, "In this you once, in these ways you once walked, and you were dead in, in the ways of the world, but God made us alive together with Christ by raising us uh, with Him and seating us in the heavenly places." That's a, yeah. a gloss on Ephesians two, but I really like Richard Mao's um, explanation of this in his book um, Calvinism in the Las Vegas Airport, where he says, hmm. um, book. "Total depravity is not absolute depravity." Right. And so that, I think that's really helpful where he's saying that the totality is the scope of it, that our depravity and sin in the world impacts everything mm-hmm. that, um, that isn't purely of God. And so um, it doesn't mean that everyone is absolutely as bad as you could We could be a lot be. worse. Than yeah, <laughs> because there is such a thing as common grace in right. the Reformed faith where, where the Lord enables those who uh, are not born again, even to do something that is would be morally good. Uh, it, it wouldn't be a saving good, mm-hmm. but God would, would help and enable those who are not born again to, to make a good choice mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, bless others in some way. Yeah, totally. One of the practical ways that I've seen how the the tea in tulip is different. It's held differently by reformed people than it is by mm-hmm. non-reformed Arminian or, mm-hmm. or so on s- sorts of folks. Is that in the Arminian perspective, it's usually seen that yes, we are affected by sin, but there's almost a little island of of uh, of the human heart that can be mm-hmm. untouched, yeah. and it's that island when that island responds to mm-hmm. God's gift of grace and the gospel, uh, that's when that person is saved. Um, and the reformed, the reformed approach says that there is no such island, and so it it comes down to mm-hmm. I, I give two different illustrations. Uh, often it seemed that it seemed that sin affects us in a way that we are almost like. Like people thrown over the ship, and we're we're in the sea, and we're trying to stay afloat, but we're 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 sinking, but we're hanging on by a thread. And if we just reach out and grab the the uh, life raft or whatever that's thrown to us, we will be saved. Uh, whereas the reformed approach says, "No, you're, you're a dead. dead corpse at the dead. bottom of the sea." Uh, there's a good song on this by a rapper named Shylin who gives this exact illustration. Uh, he says, you're a swollen corpse with hope no more until Jehovah the Lord dies from the ocean shore to the bottom of the sea, and he has to breathe life into you. Mm-hmm. Um, he has to bring you back up. You, on your own, would be would be hopeless, uh, but, it, it, but it requires God to do something to act in order to save you. Yeah, and so total depravity is one of those doctrines that people don't like to think about a whole lot, but it's actually quite helpful in explaining a lot of things that happen in the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. So after total depravity comes irresistible grace. (laughs) And um, this means that God, irresistible grace is quite closely linked to limited atonement or particular atonement Mm -hmm. because God does his saving work in Christ and um, applies that work to those children of his that he adopts into his family and um, in the same way that uh, a, a baby isn't going to reject an adoption um, mm-hmm. God's grace is irresistibly applied to us and we are brought into his family um, and uh, at times uh, that 
that doctrine would be uh, pushed back against because it can seem to diminish human responsibility. Yeah. Um, but as Reformed people who hold to total depravity, we would say in our total depravity, we would resist it. And um, I think it was John Piper who once said expertly, it's not as though God's grace can't be resisted. It's that he overcomes our resistance. Mm-hmm. And so people are resisting God's grace all the time in mm-hmm. their depravity, but God overcomes our resistance by drawing us into his family, by um, indwelling us with his spirit, making us born again, mm-hmm. uh, alive in Christ, so forth. Yeah, I think for me the passage on this is from Second Corinthians 4 where Paul is talking very eloquently about opening our eyes to the light of the face of the gospel in Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. I may have mixed those words up a little bit, but <laughs> the idea is that once God removes the veil of sin on your heart and you you see him for who he truly is you will not uh fail to desire to to follow him and so it's mm. irresistible and not in the sense that your will is being overridden necessarily but it's it's that your uh your sinful blindness has been removed mm. and therefore you are uh you will come to to follow him once regeneration has happened, and so irresistible grace is that it's not so much a uh, destruction of your human agency. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it is you finally seeing yeah. what what you truly have been looking for. Yeah. And so this this happens whenever somebody is converted to Christ, and they've been living in sin and. Eventually, they may they may hear the gospel. Maybe they've heard it a hundred times, but that hundredth time, something different happens, mm-hmm. and for once, they finally see Christ in all of His glory and goodness. And of course, then it's irresistible. Yeah, and I, I like to think of irresistible grace as sort of a declaration of God: "You are mine. Mm-hmm. You're mine now." And um, Salvation, of course, is part of that, but uh, righteousness, sanctification, um, you, you will live as a child of the king of the universe, and, and that will, and I will work that out through you with the gift of my spirit. And so it's an extremely comforting and wonderful thing to think about, actually. Hmm. And then lastly, of course, you have the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints is this... Uh, not just based on one verse of the Bible, of course, but is <laughs> no. strongly based on Jesus' statement that those mm-hmm. who are in the Father's hands cannot mm-hmm. be removed. And so those who God saves, he saves permanently. You cannot be unsaved. You cannot be, uh, if you are truly born again, mm-hmm. um, uh, you cannot be spiritually dead mm-hmm. again after that. Um and so it's a comforting doctrine. It's one that if one were to read the um, Canons of Dort, uh, it would be a very devotional part of the Canons of Dort to read if you're struggling yeah. with any doubt or concerns or uh, something difficult happening in your life. It will say over and over again that God, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. He will do it. He'll bring you home. Yeah. Yeah, John 10 is really the the favorite verse for me, at least when it comes to 
to perseverance of the saints. Um, of course, there are other passages that really have to we have to think about that make it difficult yeah. uh, to hold to a sort of I don't know static mm. or black and white understanding of this. Um, Hebrews six would be a good example uh, where it says we some people have tasted and they've, they've mm-hmm. seen they've been a part of the fellowship of God's people and they've fallen away. So then, so then what do we yeah. do? There, there, there are sorts of passages like that that make us have to really think this one through. Mm-hmm. But the general idea is that when God saves you and calls you to be a part of his family, he is going to provide for you in a way that you cannot fall away from him. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of difficulties and nuance here, and we could spend a whole episode yeah, talking easily. about this. Um, but... The, the general idea is that if you're in God's hands, you will not be pulled out of God's hands. Well, and the important thing to remember with this and with all of Reformed theology is we emphasize the work of God. So often the way that many American Christians think of their Christian faith, there's a, what's called a synergism. So sy- synergism has to do with two things cooperating. And so... Mm-hmm. In the theological world, that would be God doing something and us cooperating with that, which there there has to be some willful cooperation with what God is doing. But the yeah, Reformed person is called a monergist, meaning that there is one mm-hmm. actor, one um, agent that does what is pure and ultimately, with a capital G, good. And so... The Reformed faith emphasizes a monergistic understanding of salvation. Which is why, for example, there's the famous Reformed website that is yeah. very helpful called Monergism. It's called Monergism, yeah. And dot so, org or dot com. So that, that's a comforting <laughs> doctrine yeah. that, uh, that the, it is God's action, it's God's work, and it leads to God's glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that, we can maybe move into the solas, which yeah. are helpful for shaping not just understanding salvation itself, but maybe all of Christian life in, in other ways as well. You want to go? Yeah. With so that? the solas are not, I wouldn't say the uh, the monopoly of the Reformed tradition. Right. Yeah. There are plenty of other Protestant and evangelical people who would not be Reformed, but would hold to the solas. But nevertheless, the solas are are a part of what it means to be Reformed. To be Reformed is to hold to the solas. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's different ways of organizing the solas, but I generally start with sola gratia, and then sola fide, and then solus Christos, sola scriptura, and then soli deo gloria. Mm. So we'll go, I guess, in that order. Sola gratia, what does that mean? Well, let's first, we got to say that the word sola means alone, or only. Um, yeah. or only. And this could get interesting because... That, that sometimes lacks a little bit of nuance, I think. But sola gratia means by grace alone. We are saved by God's grace alone, as opposed to our merit or earning any of God's grace. Um, so we, we are saved not through our works, but through but through His grace. Um, and grace is then a gift, total, a free gift of God to to the sinner. Is there anything you want to add to that? No, you can jump right into what sola fide you had. So, next, so right? then sola fide is very similar. We can think of the dichotomy of 
sola gratia as grace versus merit or earning earning it. Uh, sola fide really then is opposed to works. And so you can see how these are both almost two sides of the same coin. Uh, but sola yeah. fide means by faith alone, which is uh, that we are not saved by what we do to earn it, but we are saved by by faith, which God gives us, yeah. we would say. Yeah, and then you could almost think of the first three solas as a sentence. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Yeah, so that's solus Christus. Yeah. Uh, so in Christ alone, um, we are not saved by by giving ourselves up, but we are sa- and we're not saved by the intermediation of of saints and of Mary, uh, but we are saved by Christ himself alone and what he has done. We're saved in his work and by his person. Yeah, and the next doctrine, Sola Scriptura, would be probably most um, opposed by somebody of a Catholic uh, mm-hmm. background. And Sola Scriptura says that it's really the scriptures that determine what we believe about God and ourselves and the world. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Everything must be traced to Scripture if it is going to be deemed true. And um, the, the Catholic would have... I mean, it's, I don't say this to beat up Catholics or whatever, but no. I think it's helpful to oppose it to something so that we would understand mm-hmm. more of what we believe. So the Catholic will say there's Scripture and tradition, a.k.a. the Church, mm-hmm. um, and really a very strong emphasis on the institutional Church, and so the institutional church tells us what the Bible says and how to interpret the Bible, um, whereas the priesthood of all believers in First Peter calls all of God's people to be priests who understand the Word of God and can apply it to their lives. And this is a also called the Reformed Doctrine of the Perspicuity of Scripture. Mm-hmm. That's a big word that means... <laughs> that any person gifted with the Holy Spirit can understand what they need to know in the Bible for salvation and and daily living. Yeah, perspicuity could just be the clarity of Scripture or better, the understandability of Scripture. And so Scripture alone informs uh, what we believe about God and life in the world. And so you start to see how this really matters, where if anything is... um, extra biblical and becomes a dogma or becomes a necessary belief of a church, um, we would say that that would be going outside of the doctrine of sola scriptura. Yeah, so sola scriptura then leads into the fifth one, soli deo gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. And the idea here is really built on the first two. If we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, which is a gift of God, no less than grace, which is, I think, exactly what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 teach us, where it says, you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. Interestingly, uh, faith and grace there are seen by the word this as a mm-hmm. as a whole phrase. Yeah. So it's not... Uh, so grace and faith are both God's doing. His sure. grace to us and the faith that we have are His doing in our hearts. And so if this is the case, and salvation comes because of what God does, then only God, God and God alone, can be 
the recipient of the glory and salvation. Yeah, and Soli Deo Gloria gets us into a really good summary of Reformed theology, I would say. Definitely, yeah. That um, the Reformed person, certainly the Reformed pastor, the Reformed sermon, um, something that is a ministry that's informed by Reformed theology, will be most interested in the glory of God. Hmm. And um, Herman Boving says this in uh, pages 176 and 177 of volume one of his Reformed dogmatics, where he's he's contrasting Lutherans and Calvinists, and he's saying, among the Reformed person, for the Reformed person, the primary question is, how is the glory of God advanced? Hmm. And um, for other people, the question might be, how does a human get saved? Um, hmm. How do we live our lives? Um, that would be a very uh, kind of a, a light Christian. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. even know if that would be a Christian yeah. first question to ask. Uh, yeah. But uh, the Reformed person is is interested, what is the glory of God? How mm. does it get advanced in the world? The Reformed person does not rest until he has traced all things retrospectively to the divine decree, tracking down the wherefore of things, and has prospectively made all things subservient to the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's a really helpful way of, um, I would say all Christians should be interested in that, certainly, but the Reformed person has that as its foundation. Yeah, this this we see in the very first question and answer of the Westminster yep. Catechisms, uh, the shorter and the larger. Uh, what is the chief end of man, says the shorter catechism, and the chief man's chief end is to... Uh, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we see that right from the very beginning. The, the whole point of, of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him. And so that's that's a really great quote, I think, from Bob Vink, which helps us to see that the, the main emphasis of Reformed theology is God and God's glory. And so sola deo, sola deo gloria is a perfect uh, way of thinking about that. Now, thinking back about all of the solas, it's helpful to say just real quickly that these don't mean uh, completely alone often. So we are saved by grace. This doesn't mean that we... And we're saved by faith. This doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, see our works as important. God has saved us for good works. Uh, And so this isn't to say we can get complacent and lazy in our faith. You know, God's done everything. Jesus has mm. taken the wheel, and I don't have to do anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, no, not at all. We are called, because we are we are saved by grace through faith, to good works. Again, Ephesians 10 works this out. Ephesians 2.10, excuse me. Uh, so that whole passage, mm. the, first, the first few verses of Ephesians, almost teaches Reformed theology and the solas in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Yeah. Um, but then sola scriptura, also, it doesn't mean that tradition is inherently bad or yeah, wrong, right. which is often how it's taken to mean. Mm-hmm. And so we have the Bible only just as me our the Bible, own, man. Just me and this, <laughs> uh, this book right here. And right. if I have this and I go into my room and study it for three weeks and come out and have all these new ideas, then it must be good and true. No, yeah. tradition is important insofar yeah. as it is thoroughly biblical tradition. And that's the the constant work of Reformed theology. So we, we say the famous phrase, you may have heard it, maybe you haven't. Uh, it's uh, 
Semper Reformanda. Semper Reformanda. Um, <laughs> or Reformata et Semper Reformanda, which means reformed and always reforming. Uh, and so this often gets taken to mean that we are progressing, and by always reforming, we are sort of uh, unhitching ourselves from some of the historic doctrines <laughs> of the church, um, and we're sort of uh, reframing our our total belief system. Yeah. That's not what this is was ever intended to mean. It means that we are always looking to... Uh, reform what we believe according to the Word of God. Uh, we're trying to make it more and more and more biblical constantly and not less biblical. Yeah, what, what reform people can be accused of is the, that Jesus take the wheel sort of mentality. I've, I think of a bit of an illustration where I was driving with my kids and my son Simon is... Uh, He's five years old right now, and he gets really excited thinking about the future and how there will be cars someday that drive themselves, and this is already <laughs> happening. Um, there, I, I don't know if it's legal at this point, but it seems more and more like this will happen someday where you can sit in your car, and then my son Simon said, and you could fall asleep, right, Dad? And I said, yeah, if, that, <laughs> if we had a car that did that, I could just fall asleep the whole time. And some people think Reformed theology is telling people <laughs> to take that attitude towards yeah. um, their sanctification, their daily living, that, well, God's the autopilot, and I'm just going to fall asleep. I mean, if that were the case, Jesus wouldn't have given the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would have just said, I got this, y'all, and so mm. I'm here to die. And it, it essentially doesn't matter all that much about all these parables and, and, and instructions and and <laughs> and that part of the great commission you know you're baptizing and making disciples teaching them to obey everything i have commanded you that wouldn't matter a whole lot if it was right. just um this caricature of reformed living were mm-hmm. true um mm-hmm. and unfortunately for a lot of reformed people that caricature is overlapping a little bit with reality in their lives that that they would just think let's go on sinning so that grace may abound yeah and um, that can be the downside of emphasizing grace. And the, the grace. monergistic yeah. approach of yeah. Reformed theology. Absolutely. Would you say in any way there, there is a slight form of synergy or synergism uh, in the Reformed approach to salvation and sanctification? Well, sanctification, absolutely, there would have to be, because that's where we are called to Mm -hmm. uh, not quench the Spirit, right, but to Mm -hmm. walk in step with the Spirit. Yeah, Romans 8. Those things are commands for us that God gives us agency and ability to do. Um, In terms of salvation, I, I do think we have to maintain that it's what God does, and we... we The closest I would get to a synergistic understanding is to say we experience it, we mm-hmm. receive it in in that way of um, we enjoy it, mm-hmm. uh, like again your Westminster Catechism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are aware of it, and we have an understanding of it. Yeah, and so um, certainly we would say it's not as though we're zapped and um, just you know just God God's gonna. Uh, control everything like that autopilot from now on, Hmm. Um, but we are changed in an instant, I would say, um, where where the Reformed person is born again and has an 
has an experience of regeneration mm-hmm. um, that looks different from person to person. Um, I, I hear from many saintly people that they can't exactly pinpoint the moment of their regeneration, and I don't think that that should call it into question. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I cer- can't. But certainly we would say that, like like you just said, if you can't, but we would certainly say you would hopefully have experiences of repentance mm-hmm. and of gratitude to God for salvation through Jesus Christ. And so there yeah. are those moments that, that the person is experiencing, enjoying, and thankful for the yeah. salvation that God has wrought in our lives. Yeah. When I think of the monergism and synergism question, I... Th- it's, I think it's helpful to think of salvation as being recreation. So yeah, we're good. being recreated. Or adopted. Which, so I think of the creation story. God brings it all into existence, and he breathes life into into man's nostrils. Uh, and then what is what is he called man to do? To join him in the work of, 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 of uh, multiplying and having dominion over the earth, naming the animals... And so on. There's a work that call, that man is called to. We often call this the cultural mandate. And so, I think God gives us new life. He brings us back from the dead spiritually in order to join Him in His work. Not that we are uh, His our equals to Him, but sure. I I think that we are uh, laborers with Him. God God wants us to be alive and working and active. Uh, and to take part in what he is doing in the world, not that we're doing, not that, not that we're the ones who are responsible for, uh, for bringing life to the world. Ultimately, it's God, but God mm-hmm. calls us to join Him in the work. In this sense, we are, I think, co-laborers yeah. with God. This is the the terminology of Timothy and First Timothy. Yeah, we're ambassadors of Christ. We're yeah, uh, yeah, sent into the world as again that priestly nation mm-hmm. um, to do. The, the work of really of the Old Testament priest that mm-hmm. that priest wasn't wasn't atoning for the sins of the people but he was functioning as one who was pointing people to the atoning work of mm-hmm. the living God so um, so it would probably be helpful a little bit if we get into some of the different streams of how this ref- reformed thing came into being um, I know that the, this could definitely be a whole episode yeah. by itself, but maybe we'll try to only spend five or eight minutes on uh, where did this come from? How did this happen? That That is helpful hmm. for understanding what it is. Right. So this goes back to the question I started off with that I was asked recently. What are we reformed from and what are we reforming to? Well, interestingly enough, in the history of the Reformation, you really at first have uh, Roman Catholics and Lutherans, uh, who were called evangelicals, actually, uh, very early on. Um, And the Lutherans were typically found in Germany, you know, Martin Luther and Wittenberg, Germany, and his 95 Theses. Uh, But over the next few years, uh, really by, that was 1517 that the 95 Theses are nailed. By around 1525, there was a distinct different group of Protestants. Um, sometimes they would be called Lutherans, but that really wasn't true to what they were. And so they be, they took on a more broad appellation or term, which was Reformed. And we begin to see this uh, really in the country of France, 
and in Switzerland, mm. and also in Germany, uh, in the Palatinate area of Germany. Yeah, southwest Germany. Yeah. And so, and then you also have a, a very distinct group of, of non-Roman Catholics who would develop early along in these years that would be called Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were what we would call radical reformers who... One of, the, one of the big differences with them was that they were not baptizing babies. So you have Roman Catholics, they baptize babies. Lutherans baptize babies. These other Reformed people are baptizing babies. But these Anabaptists said, no, God's covenant only is to adults, and babies are not included in this. We do not baptize babies. Mm-hmm. And so what is this then sort of uh, third, or I guess fourth party, uh, the Reformed Party. Well, what what the word Reformed meant, as far as I have read in, in history, is that it meant Reformed Catholic. You were mm. a part of this Catholic Church, and so were the Lutherans, but they but you were Reformed, and you were therefore different from the Catholic Church as it was in its institution, uh, and you were not distinct. Roman Catholic. Yeah, you were not. Catholic, yeah, yeah, exactly. You were not Reformed Re- Roman Catholic. You were. You were reformed, but you also weren't Lutheran. You weren't following in the exact. Uh, you weren't in lockstep with Luther himself or the followers of Luther, and so there were distinctions. And this uh, early on would be distinctions, particularly with the Lord's Supper. Um, and so some of the early leaders of the Reformed tradition were Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, um, although he's not really even. The founder. We don't really know who the founder was of this distinct tradition, as far as I can tell. Hmm. Uh, but Zwingli was one of the early ones. Sure, sure. Um, and, and then Calvin picks up the mantle right. in a lot of ways from so Zwingli. Calvin comes around in the 1530s and picks up the mantle. Um, and he's from France, but then would find himself in Switzerland. Uh, he was uh, actually leaving France in exile and is asked to stay. He's told that he'll be cursed if he doesn't stay. <laughs> William Farrell. So, yeah, so he stays in 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 Geneva, Switzerland. And so, anyways, it's helpful to think about Reformed theology then as this sort of federation of churches as, as the non-Lutheran Protestant message was going out. And so it really spreads from Germany and France and Switzerland to Holland and to the, Nether- to the Netherlands, uh, to Hungary, it would then jump over the the English Channel and go to Scotland and to Britain and even to Ireland. Uh, there was the Irish Presbyterians and our Irish Anglicans that were Reformed, um, and so it's so, a very broad then tradition, and it jumps around and it begins to spread throughout Europe. And one of the ways that it really spread was through the Institutes of the Christian Religion yeah. by Calvin. So people would come to Geneva, Definitely. where Calvin was a pastor at St. Peter's Church, and they would learn from Calvin and often go back to their homeland <laughs> with this great stuff that they found. And amazingly, I mean, uh, it would be good to talk about Calvin for just a few moments because <laughs> he, he was such a titanic intellect that mm-hmm. most people don't realize he was, of course, Catholic when he was mm-hmm. raised. Uh, there was no Reformation yet when he was born, and uh, it, it would have just been really kicking in um, mm-hmm. in his becoming an adult years. And he was he gave up on Catholicism and moved towards this reforming thing. I mean, it didn't have a name probably yet, but 
he had only left Catholicism, I think, four years before he wrote the Institutes, <laughs> which yeah. shows... I think he was 25 when the first edition came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, 25 years old, That's having incredible. only been really exposed to this new mm-hmm. um, stream of, of thought. But I think that partially shows how biblical Reformed theology is, that if John Calvin, who was saturated in Scripture, um, can start to see, yes, uh, the Catholic Church certainly in his day, um, and I would say to a large extent also in our day still as well, hmm. is not, it's it's just not striking on these themes I see in Scripture. He can develop a, uh, a system of theology in the Institutes in such a short time because he was so saturated in the Bible that it's it ends up just really being biblical theology. Hmm. And so that, that spreads like wildfire in particularly through yeah. uh, Switzerland, the Low Countries, and England, um, and, England and uh, France know. to some extent, although really only northern France, mm-hmm. and that was really um, pushed to the side through the French Wars of Religion yeah. in, yep. uh, in the 15 and 1600s. Yeah, those, those would be the, the Huguenots, as yeah, we they were, refer to them. And actually, my, own, my wife's own family has some Huguenot heritage because... Mm. Uh, the Reformation did not last long in France. Um, and a lot of them fled to... To the Low Countries. To the Low Countries, yeah, which, and that's where we have Friesland. Right. Um, and Frisian Dutch people, <laughs> as I've learned, yeah, being and not so, a Dutch person. And, uh, and, and anyways, um, it, it was quite European, we would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, even today, um, you will find pockets of thoroughly Reformed people in South Korea, in Brazil... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Christian Reformed Church of Cuba, of the Philippines, of um, Japan. There's a small Reformed denomination in Japan, mm-hmm. and certainly in African countries, especially Nigeria. So let's talk about then the confessions and the history of the confessions. What are some of the main confessions? And really the question here is, in what ways do confessions function in the Reformed tradition? Uh do you have to hold to a confession to be reformed? <laughs> Good question. Um, yeah, I, I think being reformed is to be confessional. That, that's probably a helpful way of putting it for somebody who's just getting introduced into what it means to be reformed. It's yeah. a good thing to read the Heidelberg Catechism mm-hmm. or the Westminster Catechism or, what is it, the 39 Articles. Mm-hmm. Um to get an understanding of not not seeing these things as supra-biblical or, or over the Bible, but seeing that these are the truths that we draw from Scripture as being central. Um, sometimes people get worried about that because it seems to compete with sola scriptura, but I always like to say um, in the Reformed faith, through our confessions, we have a structured system of what we believe. Mm-hmm. And that isn't anti-biblical, it isn't extra-biblical, it isn't ever in place of the Bible, but we try to be really particular and specific about what we understand from the Bible to be the most important. Mm-hmm. And some people would even look at that and say, whoa, 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 most important part of the Bible. 
I mean, all scripture <laughs> is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in yeah. righteousness. And That's a good however, point. we would say, like what Paul says in First Corinthians 15, what I passed on to you is of greatest importance. Yeah, there's a there is a place for prioritizing. Yeah. And so he goes on to say the the good news, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection is of mm-hmm. highest importance. Yeah. And um I, I had a, a friend who wasn't a Christian who talked about how, oh well, um all of it should be of equal importance, right? And so therefore you could just pick out some random proverb and say that that's just as important as First Corinthians fifteen. Mm-hmm. And I would say no, based on what we even see in the Bible, as said, it is of most importance. And so mm-hmm. the confessions help us to center on that is uh, on the doctrines that are of the greatest importance for salvation and daily living. Yeah, I, I tend, just to keep it short, I, I tend to think that to be Reformed in an official sense, you need to be confessional. That's up for debate, and yeah, I'm okay for having yeah, that debate. That's a little bit. But I... I think that it's best to hold to a confession. There are lots of interesting confessions. The Reformed tradition, as it spread into lots of different countries, uh, began to take on what I sort of see as different dialects. It's all the same language, but there's different dialects and different accents. Um, And so the main ones, as we know today, are the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, the Heidelberg Catechism. Then you have on the British Isles, the Westminster Standards, um, but there are other unique Reformed documents. Um, and so holding to one of these is incredibly helpful and important for all the reasons that Mark just mentioned. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I think of them as dialects. That's that's how I often explain it to, to people. Well, and everyone has dogmas. Everyone, even the yeah. atheist has their dogmas that are yeah. untouchable and that will not be budged. And so I often will say to people, we are clear about our dogmas. We're, mm. we're clear about what we believe is the most important foundational truth. And it's written down. The fact that it's yeah. written down somewhere doesn't make it idolatrous yeah. or supra-biblical. Um, the fact that it's written down actually, I think, is helpful for un- unifying us around those things. Yeah, it's given us a sort of... Uh, it's it keeps us accountable in that sense because it's yeah. there and we can't deny it and so we have to uh, stick with it. I think in the last section of this episode, it would be interesting now for us to turn to. Uh, so we looked at the history and what mm-hmm. sort of the substance is, and there's a lot more more that could be said. But what then, looking to the future, what is the future of Reformed theology, and what are some of the threats that we perceive to it going forward? Yeah, um, Herman Bobbing gets into this in that same chapter of Reform Dogmatics, and the, the last sentence of that section, and he wrote this in 1894, is, hmm. there is clearly no rosy future awaiting Calvinism in America. <laughs> so wow. so he is he's quite pessimistic at, in 1894 <laughs> about how things are going to go for Calvinistic theology, reform, the Reformed faith in North America, and particularly in the United States, and hmm. um, things there were there have been uh, revivals of different types of Reformed theology even since he wrote that in the early 20th century through yep. J. Gresham Machen, Machen mm-hmm. and um, in the later 20th century through people like John Piper and um, J. I. Packer mm-hmm. and, um, and Sproul, who who knows exactly how that 
that type of revival could occur in our day and, you know, getting into the mid 21st century. Um, hopefully mm-hmm. there would be some kind of revival of interest in the glory of God as seen through the, the doctrines of grace. Yeah. Um, but he, he, to summarize a lot of his concerns in America, um, he would say individualism is a great th- threat to Reformed theology. Um, we could point. get into a whole episode on that. Um, he would say scientism is a threat to Reformed theology and this hmm. enlightenment desire to have an answer for absolutely everything, which we talked about in our last episode, is actually very unreformed to say yeah. that we have to be able to answer ev- every question. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, he would go on to say anti-confessionalism, which <laughs> certainly we would see in the non-denominational movement, yeah. um, has been a threat to Reformed theology that this uh, this mantra of no creed but Christ, no law but love, um, to which I think Doug Wilson says, that's a very nice creed and a very nice <laughs> law. Um, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a self-defeating premise in some way, yeah. but there is, a, in America in particular, a real uh, desire for low church, loose affiliation, mm-hmm. um, less, I would say, and anti-intellectualism probably in Mm. non-denominationalism would be a a threat of that. Just sort of give it to me straight, Pastor, and leave me with a chuckle and a nice life lesson, and then I'll be on my way for the week. That's very opposed to Reformed thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he also would say the trend towards universalism is a threat to the Reformed faith as well, this idea Mm. that, uh, that God's love is just for everyone. It's the love wins Rob Bell um, theology that um, Herman Bovink already saw in the late 19th century creeping in and and making a threat to um, particularly a doctrine like particular atonement. Those are that's that's really well stated by by Bovink. I, I was going to summarize it in saying rationalism and sectarianism, which I think sure. encompass what that. he's saying, but he says it with more nuance and gives more explanation than I was going to. So then, what do we think is the future of Reformed theology, and how do we seek the renewal of Reformed theology today? Yeah, this is something that I think about a lot as a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church, and so I wonder not just about the reformness of our church, but of our own denomination. And um, I really strongly believe that if we are going to have a future as a Christian Reformed church and as a truly Reformed denomination, we need to get serious about embracing our Reformed theological heritage. And so um, Zach and I talk at times about if we are... We, we need to be making Christians, we need to be disciple-making in the mm-hmm. broad sense of making sure people follow Jesus Christ and understand His atonement, His resurrection, His yeah. Word. Um, but also, it is important to us that people would be Reformed Christians. Mm. And so, in my preaching and in Zach's youth ministry, mm-hmm. it matters to us that people embrace this these Reformed tenets of faith and and I we see a real delusion of this in the Christian Reformed Church, yeah. and um, where where people will say, well, really, what matters is following Jesus, which is true, but the um, the emphasis on an, a reformed understanding, a reformed 
worldview, I know that's a Mm -hmm. debatable term, um, does (laughs) matter and is helpful. And we want you to to read a Spurgeon sermon because it's so thoroughly reformed. And we want you to read the Institutes because they're better than... Um, the Lutheran Catechism, and you know, so forth. Um, n- not just to put other people down, but we yeah. think these are the best resources. Yeah. We that hold they could to have. these things on purpose. Yeah, I-, I see a lot, sort of similar to that in in our own denomination, but also in some of the broader parts of the Reformed world. Almost a sort of uh, embarrassment of the yeah. Reformed faith that we hold to. Um, I think particularly speaking from my perspective in the CRC, Hmm. as somebody who, again, did not grow up in the CRC, uh, is that a lot of young people I see have have been so inculcated and inoculated, I think, in in Reformed theology that there's almost sort of a, a feeling that, man, the grass is really greener on the other side. And so I have the reverse perspective coming in from the outside into the CRC, uh, I, I was drawn to Reformed theology for what it offered, and and so a lot a lot of what I try to do in, in youth ministry, it's not my main goal, as Mark said, but I will try to bring up, here's what the Catechism says mm-hmm. on, on this, and here's why it's good to, to have the Catechism, and as we think through the Ten Commandments, which is what we're doing right now, uh, and, and to show them that, look, if you're going to re- leave the Reformed tradition at some point, at least leave it knowing what it, what it is all about and mm-hmm. the goodness and beauty and the hope of the Reformed tradition. Yeah, if there's going to be a future of the Christian Reformed Church, um, we need to get away a little bit from this trend towards non-denominationalizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say what I read in the banner what I hear from denominational leaders, what I have heard in Christian Reformed pulpits. I have heard Arminianism. I have heard um, really low, uh, sort of a low emphasis on the glory of God, Mm -hmm. the doctrines of grace, um, our confessions. Um, you, You could probably go to some Christian Reformed churches, and never hear a reference to the catechism or church history for years. Mm-hmm. And so that that would be um, a way of getting a, away from our Reformed heritage, I would say. So that's sort of what it looks like in practical terms, that yeah. it matters to us that our people, not that they need to know more about Jonathan Edwards than Jesus, absolutely not, <laughs> but... They need to know that Jonathan Edwards and Calvin and J.I. Packer are voices we really appreciate. Yeah, I, I think, and I'll just in my yeah. comments here with this, the Reformed tradition gave me a sense of stability that I did not have as a non-denominational evangelical. And so it seemed that the the faith could be reshaped and reframed in every generation just because it was us and the Bible. Mm-hmm. And this isn't to say that my church back home, if anybody's listening, uh, is is completely like this, but it began to feel like broad evangelicalism was too prone towards uh, fads and trends and individualism and yeah. pragmatism and what, yeah. se- what works best. And so Reformed theology 
and by digging into the history of it and to really the history of the whole church has given me a sense of ballast and, and depth that I didn't have prior to to entering into the Reformed faith. And so there's so much that I've gained that I maybe have lost the freedom of, of interpreting Scripture more freely because mm. now I have confession that I hold to, mm. but I have gained so much more than what I have lost. And so... Yeah, the, yeah, well, hey, that's an awesome advertisement. I, I would even go out on a limb now and say, I think this deserves a part two um, <laughs> because we haven't yeah. really gotten into some of the dangers within our Reformed understanding, particularly particularly a danger towards intellectualism. Yeah, we need to get to that. And so I think that we'll address that and maybe even a little bit more of the future of the Reformed faith mm-hmm. in our next episode here on Reformed Pod- Podmatics. But... Thank you so much for listening, for uh, taking your precious time to uh, hear what we have to say about this very important topic. We'd love to hear feedback again through social media or even by commenting on um, the Podbean page. I know that some people have done that, and we appreciate it. I've gotten back to some of those folks. Hmm. Um, But anyways, thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. God bless you. Yep. Take care, guys. Bye.